This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Hamilton City Councilor Donna Skelly has suggested that Lime Ridge Mall would be a nice fit for a new arena for the Hamilton Bulldogs. Uh, this goes along with the mayor's motion to make it easier for developers to build apartments and condos on convert commercial developments. We've talked about the mayor. Uh, talked to the mayor about this before, and he was on the Bill Kelly Show talking about this this morning. And basically said, you know, you get places like Center Mall, Eastgate, whatever, that that are looking to be repurposed. Uh, malls that not were not what they once were, uh, now adding other components, whether it be residential, other commercial activities, as well as the retail space that we normally see in shopping malls. It's a great idea. Um, but I'm not sure Lime Ridge Mall is one of those locations because it seems to be flourishing. At least it certainly is anytime I get there on the weekend, uh, especially around Christmas time. Now, I'm not a big mall guy. I'll tell you that right now. I absolutely detest shopping. Sorry. But uh, again, um, it's it's just surprising that this is a location where something like this would be suggested. Uh, that being said, the mayor said he's up for all options. And, and the great thing about this is it could involve involve more private money. Uh, than it does public money. To talk more about all of this, and we tried to get a hold of Cadillac Fairview, uh, Councillor Skelly and Michael Andlauer on this, uh, none of them available to join us at this time during the noon hour. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, uh, show sports columnist for your Hamilton Spectator, and of course you can hear him every weeknight here on CHML. Scott, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. That's quite an introduction. We tried to get every other person on the I know, planet. I know. And we got we leveled up with Scott. You know, I did the same thing with Larry Deani yesterday and you know, clearly I've got to readjust how I do this. Because people are becoming uh, it's okay, I will not take it personally. I, I, it's fine. not about per- it's just I, I wanted to just inform the listeners that, you know, I'm we have kidding. tried to pursue other options. Not that we wouldn't want your I'm, opinion on this as well. I am just kidding, Scott. I'm just having a little fun with you. Uh, all right, like my shoes are smoking from tap dancing here. <laughs> there is something that I learned when you talk about Lime Ridge Mall. There's something I learned in recent days about Lime Ridge, which blew me away, which may answer some of the questions about why this is a location that they're talking about. Now, you may know this, Scott, and the listeners may have known this for a long time, but I just had it confirmed, which I had heard before, but Lime Ridge Mall is the single largest taxpayer in the city of Hamilton. Yeah, the malls pay a lot. Yep. Bo- more than the steel mills, more than anyone else. Lime Ridge contributes more to the tax levy in this city than anywhere else. So if you're the city of Hamilton and you're thinking, okay, we've got e-commerce, we've got online shopping, we know that there are fewer people going to malls, what do we do? Even though you're right, uh, most more often than not, you go on a weekend, Lime Ridge is doing fine, but what do we do to make sure that that, we'll call it a cash cow, because that's really what it is for the city, that that stays like that. Because it would be disastrous for the city if that source of revenue in taxes were to suddenly dry up. If suddenly, as shopping changes, as habits change, if we find down the road that nobody's going to Lime Ridge and suddenly stores you know, start looking like the old downtown Eaton Center, mm. what happens then? And yeah, so, you know, I, I I agree with that, and I and I totally agree with this this process of of, of repurposing malls that that aren't 
um, that aren't uh, as profitable as they once were. But you just said, it, number one, it's a busy place. It's the biggest taxpayer. It's also the biggest revenue. It, it creates a lot of revenue. That's why it's paying so much tax. So at the end of the day, I'm not sure this is the place for a repurpose. Center Mall, Eastgate, uh, absolutely. But this is a place that's that's in the middle of a residential neighborhood, and it's flourishing. So I'm not sure when people are talking about doing this sort of thing to malls, if this is one of those malls where you would do that. Um, that being said, I, you know, uh, it, it certainly is worth looking at. Many are questioning whether there is enough room up there, something I didn't know. I wasn't aware that they own all the land where, where the Suds is and all that other area as, as well. So there's a portion of that, uh, their property, that isn't developed yet. So, uh, but, but do you see an arena that holds seven, 7,500 people there, 10,000 people there, uh, along with whatever you need for a shopping mall? Uh, there are a number of things. Uh, Sears, um, you go to Guelph, Guelph's Arena, which is 5,000, give or take, the Sleeman Center is attached to a mall. So you're in the mall, and it's at one end, and suddenly now there is the arena stuck on the end of it. And what that does is now you come, to, you can park, you go in, you would ex- probably have expanded food courts, put a few more restaurants in the mall because now it's your entertainment thing. You go for a concert and there you go. Yeah, it's become an inter- yeah, your mall's become an entertainment complex. So, it, so if you were to take Sears off the end and put something in, just as an example, yes, there, there is definitely space for it. And there's, there's other possibilities. Hmm. There's something else, though, and, and a lot of people... Uh, listening probably right now are saying, well, wait, what about downtown? Yeah. What about downtown? These things have to be downtown. And I, I, I'm not, it's a discussion to have for sure. I think there's a lot of people though, as many people who would say these things have to be downtown, there are as many people in this city saying, wait, why does everything have to be downtown? Mm-hmm. And you are right on. Well, the reason everything has point. to be downtown is because we've just seen for the last 20 years what happens when you don't have a vibrant downtown. So you know, in answer to that question, why does everything have to be downtown? Because cities that don't have a downtown, a vibrant downtown don't succeed. I agree with you. The flip side is that Hamilton's in a unique position geographically, as everyone listening knows, because you've got an upper city and you've got a lower city. You've got suburb, a big suburb, which is bigger than the city itself. Mm. And you can make an argument that you actually kind of have two cities here and you don't want to completely abandon the mountain, the suburb side of the city. Now, again, people will say, well, who's abandoning them? The money is there. I, I agree with you. But it's it's to me it's not a crazy idea. It's not a cra- It's not a cr- as crazy an idea as it would be in a lot of other cities. What's a be- What's a better idea? Building a, a, another arena up near Lime Ridge or refurbing the one downtown? Here's the concern I have, and you know maybe this isn't worth it. You know to have a building like this, even though there isn't a sports team playing in it, a professional sports team playing in it. It still is a, a venue for concerts and large acts that come through. If something happens to that or we get rid of it or we downsize it, we lose a lot of that. Now, many would say, well, how many of those come in over the course of a year? Fair enough. And you probably have five, maybe, over the course of a year, uh, except in unusual years. I mean, when Garth Brooks came, they had five in four nights or something like that. So Mm -hmm. uh, that's a fair comment for sure. And there is also, don't forget, the Sam Marula proposal that came a number of months ago when... Michael Ann Lauer, the owner of the Bulldogs, was talking about this and when this came up. And Sam's idea was, let's give 
First Ontario Centre and the footprint that it's on and maybe other parts of that area, the Convention Centre, whatever else, the uh, the Hamilton Place or what's it called, the First Ontario Concert Hall. Mm-hmm. Let's give that whole area, the footprint, to a developer. Say, you build us a new rink, a new concert hall, a new convention centre, and you can have the vertical rights above that. So you want to build a 30-story condo development and you can make the money off that? So the city gets the facilities they need, and you, the developer, for giving us that, you get the rights to make your money in a lot more with condos. That exists as well. So it's about, you know, that's, the, that's a, an idea for refurbishing that particular thing. The tricky part about, the tricky part about, I think, and I didn't hear all, unfortunately, of the mayor's comments with, with uh, Bill Kelly today. I had the mayor on two nights ago when we were chatting about this. Uh, I didn't hear all the comments, but I think what he said is the possibility of a new arena privately built or almost exclusively privately funded up on the mountain and keep First Ontario Centre open as well. How do you pay for that? Like how, if, if you're only having a certain number of events there every year, how do you continue to pay the bills for that place when, especially Scott, when you can? How, how are they that, doing it now? I mean, with all due respect, well, it's just the bulldogs that are in there. No, it's not. No, it's not. It is the bulldogs as the anchor tenant, but pretty much every significant concert that's bigger yeah, than First Ontario yeah. Center, yeah. Uh, First Ontario Concert Hall. Now, if you have a seven thousand seat brand new state of the art facility up on the mountain mm-hmm. that is competing for all the medium-sized concerts with yeah. First Ontario, and yeah. you've got a choice. Do we mm-hmm. go to the brand-new place or the old place? Yeah, you'll still get the Garth Brooks, you'll still get the Paul McCartney's, but a lot of that stuff is going to leave the First Ontario Centre. How then do you pay the heating, the hydro? That looks to me, that yeah. sounds to me, like that's a tax expense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then that's that, that's a big issue as well, is that what do you, you know, do you take the, the, the older rink, uh, the First Ontario Centre, do you uh, do you refurbish it, make it into a smaller venue, then of course you give up on the, on the larger shows, uh, or do you have two facilities, how do you pay for the second one? I, I mean, the, you know, considering the discussions we're having around LRT, I'm surprised we're even open to this discussion. Right well, now. there's option number three, don't forget, that everyone seems to have forgotten about, and that is... The city has just given uh, Core, uh, what are they called now? I can't remember the name of the company that runs First Ontario Centre and all them. They have given them, remember, until the end of the year, the chance to book things into Tim Hortons Field. So while obviously you're not going to have a Paul McCartney concert in December outdoors in Hamilton, if you have an opportunity, you have 24,000 seats there for a huge outdoor concert in the summer, yeah. decent weather if you want it. So it's not like we're absent. Any no. places to hold something else? There's that as a as a third option. I have two. To. I, I have two emails from listeners that said, "What about that huge dog park right across from Lime Ridge?" Oh, the, the uh, uh, what's it called? Sam McQuestion. Sam. Yeah, there's been it, chatter about a, that. TB McQuestion. It is yeah. a it, sorry. Yeah, thank you, Sam. I got Sam Lawrence and this one all mixed up. Um, it is. Uh, yeah, it, there's a huge chunk of land as well that right now is. Well, whenever I'm by there, I would describe it as sparsely used at best. Hmm. So I don't know what bylaws exist. I don't know what rules exist about develop. I don't know. Is there a law that says you can't, the city can't allow development there if it's an area that's not very well used? I don't know. Build a, a pedestrian bridge over the link 
park at Lime Ridge, eat at Lime Ridge, and then walk over. Hmm. Look, there there are places. Go to Pittsburgh to the baseball diamond. They're over the river there. There's a great pedestrian bridge. You go downtown, you eat, and then you walk over the bridge and go to the go to the baseball game. Maybe that's an idea. Uh, many thought that this was not a discussion that would happen once we're because we're in the throes of the LRT uh, project. Do you think that plays a factor in here, especially if it does involve private money? Can you actually see this moving forward? It, that's, I think, why this is a discussion right now, because the discussion that has popped up now is if this is a almost exclusively or heavily, heavily, heavily privately funded venture, why not have the discussion? If this yeah. if this is something where you're going to have to spend $200 million of city dollars, that's a very different discussion than if yeah. the city comes and says, give us some land and build us a... Uh, a pedestrian bridge or build us you know something that's going to cost 10 or 12 million dollars and you're going to get a new arena that's a those are two very different discussions and yep. if it's the latter you can have that discussion anytime it doesn't matter what other discussions you're having about public funds when you're thinking about it if this is involving all private money why are we even talking about it at this point why is it why is why are we talking about it wouldn't these decisions be going on wouldn't these meetings be going on behind closed doors and then all of a sudden and all of a sudden someone says hey look what we're going to do i mean you know we're 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 treating this as if it is a public project well and part of the reason is uh, again when i had the mayor on the show two nights ago and we were specifically talking about the proposal, the motion he brought forward at City Council about using mall space yeah. for housing. And I asked him the question after we talked about that for a few minutes. I said, are you only thinking of housing or could this be mixed use? Could mm-hmm. it be for other little stores? Could sure. it be for other restaurants? Or, as Councillor Skelly mentioned once upon a time, could it be for an arena? And that's when he said... And, you know, I could, I'd have to go back and listen to the exact wording of the tape, but that's when the door was kind of open. As yeah. we could, you know, we could listen to basically anything. So uh, I don't know that this has been a discussion that has intentionally started as a let's revitalize the arena discussion. Right. It's a spinoff of let's use mall or yeah. commercial shopping areas for other things. Yeah. And, okay, what would that mean then? Scott Radley has been with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can hear him tonight on CHML and, of course, read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We have talked about this before. Uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, uh, a slew of recommendations. Uh, Premier, or sorry, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau says he's doing his best to implement all of them. Uh, a situation, a problem when it comes to getting an apology from the Pope in regard to the Catholic Church and their involvement in the residential school system. Uh, MPs have slammed the response by Canadian bishops to ask Pope Francis for an apology on the residential school system. To talk more about all of this, Charlie Angus is with us, NDP MPP Timmins James Bay. He introduced this motion and he is with us now. Charlie, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Hey, thanks so much for letting me be on your show. How surprised are you that you're getting this kind of blowback from the Canadian bishops? Well, you know, I mean, the issue of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission work has opened the eyes of everybody. I mean, I don't think anybody could say they before that they knew the extent mm. of the abuse and just how systemic it was in order, you know, to attempt to basically destroy an entire identity of a people. Um, and all the Christian denominations that were involved stepped up. There were very formal apologies. There's been a lot of work done. They paid, you know, 
shares of compensation, which of course doesn't even come close to what probably should be paid, but they paid their share. The Catholic Church has been the real outlier here. What really shocked me from the bishops showing up in Parliament yesterday was they were basically claiming that the Catholic Church didn't exist in Canada. It was just a whole series of these isolated legal entities that weren't legally responsible for anything. That's not a credible response, uh, and I think people expected better. What about the other churches that did respond? Wouldn't they be in the same scenario? Well, all the other churches faced the same kind of lawsuits, um, same kind of pressures. Um, the Anglican Church paid its full share. Uh, the Presbyterians stepped up. The Catholic Church ran the vast majority of the orders or the schools and some of the worst abuses, for example, the St. Anne's Residential School in my region in Fort Albany, which has become notorious, was a, a, an institution. It was a torture institution, and it was known by the bishops uh, what was going on. The government knew. So there has to be some accountability. So this motion to have the Pope respond to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission coming from Parliament, it is extraordinary, but this is in response to what was a government-run system with the churches. Um, I believe fully that Pope Francis because he's such a social justice pope and so so caring on these issues, would respond. But it, apparently he needs to get invited by the Catholic bishops of Canada. And they came to Ottawa and presented a very uh, dismal uh, ex- series of excuses. So I think the obstruction here is in Canada. It's not with the pope. So, uh, that was my next question. Is this the pope uh, th- that's making these calls, or is these, this Canadian bishops not wanting to present this to him, allowing him to, to come over and apologize? Well, Pope Francis has been an outspoken uh, advocate yeah. on the Church coming to terms with these issues. Uh, they've apologized for the sexual abuse in Ireland, in Australia, against Indigenous people. In Bolivia, he spoke out. He just spoke out this week in Chile, uh, where the bishops had misrepresented just how bad it was, and he said he personally had to step in. Um, But in Canada, he's waiting to hear from the Catholic bishops. um, And again, at every step of the way, the Catholic Church in Canada, and I'm a Catholic, I I grew up in the, the Church, I have a great love for it, but they've always, they've, they've expressed, you know, regret or sorrow, but it's it's always about a few bad apples, and let's all move on, as opposed to saying, this was how it was set up, this was an institution, we knew what was going on, and we are legally responsible. They have not made that apology yet, and they, they walked on the millions that they owed um, through a legal loophole, and that's that's just not right. Uh, can't Pope Francis speak up against this and, and, and sort of override the Canadian bishops and say, this is something that I need to tend to personally? Well, we've seen the Pope uh, do this on numerous occasions where the local bishops uh, uh, were not living what Pope Francis thought was God's call for justice, and the Pope has shown he's willing to step on toes if he has to. Uh, I, I think it's extraordinary that Parliament would even have to consider asking the bishops to do the right thing, because the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has been one of the most important um, fact-finding missions on a, a horrific story. We need to move on. The survivors need to move on. I talked to many of the survivors yesterday who say they're sick to their stomach. They just want, they just want everyone involved to say, we, we're sorry for what we did and move on. So I could see the Pope moving forward, but I'd really like to see some leadership from the Canadian Catholic Church here. Uh, will, uh, where does Pope Francis stand on this? Does he, is he willing to let the Canadian bishops decide? Well, I think his response surprised everyone, and people thought it was a pope refusing. I think he was trying to say to us that he's, 
you know, he's, he's listening to what the bishops are telling him. And yesterday, the bishops kind of, their, their excuse was, well, the Pope can't speak because he has to defer to local bishops, and then local bishops can't speak because they don't really speak for the Church. And, well, I mean, what is the Catholic Church? It is a very structured order that where the power lies with the Pope. I mean, that's what Jesus that's what they say goes back to Jesus. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And yet these bishops seem to be saying, yeah, well, when it comes to legal liabilities for the assaults and tortured children, none of us are going to take responsibility. That's not good enough. Uh, you're the first one to come on and say anything about liability. Is this what this is all about, Charlie, is money? Well, unfortunately, there's been a pattern with every single abuse case that it comes down to liability, and the, and the church has fought every step of the way. They were legally obliged to pay $25 million uh, in a special fund to the survivors. They walked on that. They said they paid $3.7 million. They ended up taking most of that in overhead for their church costs, and a legal loophole let them off. There is no power in Parliament to force the church to come back to the table because they got off on a legal technicality. But it's a moral question. Uh, for the damage that was done, for the incredible power that the church has, they should come back to the table and say, we'll pay our share. And I, I point to you this famous painting uh, by uh, David, the famous French painter, that people are willing to pay $10 million yeah. for. It's in the hands <laughs> of a, a church. Mm. Well, hey, how about cashing in that painting mm. um, and paying some of the costs? So they have the ability to pay. They just don't seem to want to legally admit. And that's, in 2018, that just doesn't cut it. Uh, what do bishops or even the Pope say when it's pointed out that every other religious organization has done this back in the 1990s? Well, um, the bishops have been claiming that there's been a whole series of apologies. Well, there's been a whole series of orders that we've had to face major, major legal financial lawsuits. Um, wherever there's been, there's been always about the attempt to limit how much they're admitting to, how much they're culpable for. Um, Pope Benedict did uh, previously express his personal sorrow. Uh, they've expressed regret. That's all nice, but that's not the same as saying, yes, we were involved in a system that was deliberately set up to destroy Indigenous identity by forcibly taking the children away, and then we took those children, thousands of them died, and thousands more were abused or tortured. That kind of apology has not been made, and that is what will close this chapter, not a personal amount of regret about a couple bad actors. This wasn't about a few bad actors. This was about a system, and that's the apology we haven't heard. Obviously, the government has apologized. Um, shouldn't, shouldn't those who actually implemented this policy, aren't they closer to this than anyone, even more so than the Canadian government? Or certainly as much? Well, I mean, there are really, there were two, you know, if we look at this as in a, a case of institutional child abuse, there were two abusers, two defendants, the federal government and the church. Um, and the federal government finally was brought to the table, and it was Stephen Harper who made that apology. And that was a historic moment in our country where he said, yes, what we did uh, was brutal and it was wrong. Now it's time for the other defendant, the, the church, to say, yes, what we did was brutal and what we did was wrong. And I'll tell you, from talking with the survivors yesterday and over the past few weeks, a, an apology means a lot. And many, many of the survivors are churchgoers. They have people of deep faith, despite the horrific abuse they've suffered. They just want 
the church to do the right thing. And I think that's what we all want the church to do. We want the church to be playing uh, a role of moral leadership, of showing that it's walking on the path, that it's living the gospel, that it's, it's, it's doing as an institution what it tells individuals to do every Sunday, which is, you know, admit when you're wrong, make things right, and, and, and walk humbly with God as a servant of your neighbor. That's what the church stands for, so do it. At what point, and obviously you can't answer this question, but at what point does this bad PR for, for the Catholic Church do more damage than admitting the wrong? Well, I, um, <laughs> I, I was very surprised by the, the response of the bishops yesterday. Uh, it was uh, just it was deplorable. I mean, they were just dodging straight-up questions about accountability and apology. Uh, I think they've done enormous damage, and I find that very disturbing, because people should look to the Church uh, for hope and for leadership, and they ain't getting it here. So they've done a lot of damage to the uh, to the work of the Church, and I just think, come on, guys, wake up, look in the mirror, and say, wow, that was a really bad decision to try and evade this responsibility. Let's fix this. And that's, it is the outstanding question in our country. We have to close this chapter on uh, on the horrific residential schools, and we have to follow through on what the Truth and Reconciliation called on Canada and the churches to do. And we will, if the church isn't going to do it, we're going to have to do it through Parliament. Uh, there's been chatter about a papal visit and, and so on and so forth. How would he, how would he come here and, and meet with these people and not offer an apology? Well, again, this is the thing that like, just doesn't make sense. The idea that Pope Francis is going to show up in Canada and not sit down almost immediately with the indigenous communities yeah. that were the most brutally affected and apologize, that, just does not, that does not fit the mode of who Francis is. This is what he does. He goes around the world trying to fix the damage and, and give people hope. So why are, why are the Canadian bishops so reluctant to ask him to come and do this? It, it, it makes no sense. I think it keeps going back to this, um, the legal uh, view, the lawyers working mm. for the church who keep saying, admit nothing, give no ground, keep trying to av- avoid. Well, we're way past that in 2018. Can the Pope come here without an apology? How will that be, how will that be viewed? I would find a, very hard to believe that Pope Francis would not come to can- would would try and avoid that <laughs> the bishops might but uh you know i put my money on pope francis everything he's done as a leader has been about trying to fix the harms that were done by the church and moving the church forward in an area of justice that's his whole mission i have enormous faith that the pope's going to do the right thing i just can't understand why the bishops just don't say you know you're right we'll contact the pope we'll start this process and we want everyone to know we're going to do our part uh, That's this, not so hard. As you mentioned, uh, Pope Francis is very progressive, and, and, and that has stepped on the toes of a lot of people within the Catholic Church, I- including lots that are just below him. Uh, what is the relationship like between, Canadian, uh, between the Canadian contingency and Pope Francis on this? Well, that's a really good question. You know, I'm certainly not an expert on pope on uh, papal affairs, and but we've seen that the pope in South America and other jurisdictions, where some of the cardinals were being very reactionary, uh, the pope has been more than willing to call them out. The pope's retired, literally forcibly retired, a number of uh, senior, senior, powerful cardinals that he thought were standing in the way of making positive change. So this guy's shown he's a will- he's willing to to step on toes. I would have thought that the Canadian 
uh, bishops and that would have had a real positive role uh, with him and that they would they would be saying to him, come on, come to Canada, let's get through this papal apology. They seem to be standing in the way, and I, I just don't understand that. What can Parliament do? What can they do beyond what they have? Well, we will be bringing a motion to respect uh, the call to action of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and that will include asking the Conference of Bishops to, in, to begin the process of the formal apology and also ask the bishops to come back to the table and pay the money that they walked away on. There's no legal power the Church has over the state to make them do the, the power of the state over the Church. There's no legal mechanisms to make the bishops do the right thing, but it's a moral question, and it's a question that Canadians from coast to coast to coast have decided we get it, we understand the wrong that was done, let's fix it and move on. And it's a message I hear from the survivors, let's fix this and move on so that our kids and our grandkids can grow up in a country where we all share a vision of a better world. So the question, is the church going to ignore the call of parliament? Maybe, but it just at what cost to the reputation and why? That. Those are the questions the Church has to ask themselves. Any idea what this would cost the Catholic Church if they did own up to this? Well, they're on the hook for about $20 million right now, which is almost chump change compared to how they would have been sued into the ground if all the civil lawsuits had gone ahead. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of lawsuits. So they signed an agreement in 2006 with the Stephen Harper government uh, to avoid all those costs, and they were going to have to pay some monies into some special funds. So they got off pr- pretty much scot-free, uh, and yet on this $25 million, they walked on the vast majority of it. So if they paid that, they would still be way ahead of what they would have faced if they'd faced all the individual lawsuits that they were for some horrific, horrific abuse and torture. Will we still be talking about this next year? I really hope that this issue is coming to a close. Uh, I deal in my region with the St. Anne's residential school survivors who are still fighting justice from the federal government on basic issues. of um, Children who were, you know, uh, sexually abused by serial pedophiles and government suppressed the names of these predators. I mean, it, this, is, this is not where we should be in 2018. So I'm really hoping we can finally close this chapter and move on. Charlie Angus has been with us, NDP MPP for Timmins, James Bay. He introduced the motions. MPs have slammed, uh, sorry, MP, the uh, MPs have slammed the response by Canadian bishops to ask uh, Pope Francis for an apology on residential schools. Charlie, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Cuba's next president will not be a Castro, as today marks the final day for Raul Castro, uh, it turns out Mikhail Diaz-Canal has been named as the newest president. What's he like? What does it mean for international relations? What does it mean for those in Cuba? Let's bring in Christopher Baker, travel writer and photographer, expert on the island's culture, politics, history, and economics, has even met Castro, and is with us now. Christopher, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Um, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you, Scott. Tell us of your meeting with Castro. Well, I had two invitations to meet him. I've been going to Cuba for almost 30 years, and the actual meeting took place when I was uh, brought into Cuba with about 40 Americans in October 2003. The one-on-one was very brief. Everybody was jostling to meet with him, but uh, I did get a measure of the man, as they say. Uh, very, very charismatic personality, quite obviously. So what was your impression of that meeting, albeit short? 
Well, he knows how to charm people. Uh, that's for sure. He had everybody, all the Americans. Uh, obviously, there are many conservative Americans amongst the group, but he, he had pretty much everybody in his hand uh, within five minutes, purely by charm. But also, it's interesting, I saw kind of the Machiavellian side of him, too, the megalomaniac uh, person who has to be right. Uh, this is somebody who is renowned uh, for never having apologized. Um, and so I, I saw that quality of him. Um, I feel two ways to this day about him. I have tremendous admiration for him, and I understand, too, the, the costs uh, that were involved in the revolution. It's interesting the way you describe him as a communist dictator. You Many probably wouldn't think that who, who, who haven't met him. Well, I certainly have a problem with anybody who uses the title brutal dictator. Yeah. I think that's way overboard. Um, certainly, uh, he, he would, had no time for anybody who opposed him, uh, and a lot of people paid uh, a price. But uh, the brutal dictator aspect really is, um, comes because of the people who were executed immediately after the revolution. And there's absolutely no doubt that uh, many of those people deserved it. Um, Batista's regime was very, very brutal. We're going to see, obviously, with Miguel Diaz-Canel, whether there are any new openings. Uh, Raul has certainly liberalized and in the last five or six years alone. In terms of freedom of uh, expression, which is something, of course, North Americans pay a lot of attention to, there's been tremendous liberalization. Um, and so we'll see whether there's any further openings under Miguel Diaz-Canel. As you look back on uh, both Fidel Castro and Raul, uh, obviously very different, as you said, the, the latter certainly uh, liberalizing the country and, and moving it forward more. As you look back on the, regi- the, uh, uh, the regime of, of, of he and his brother, was, were they successful? What, did their policy work for Cubans? Um, the answer is quite plainly yes and no. Um, the communist system, we all know, is not an economic, uh, sus- economically sustainable proposition, and right. so it's been disastrous. Uh, that said, Cuba uniquely has had to operate under uh, a rather uh, tyrannical U.S. embargo that's still in place. So the circumstances have not favored Cuba. Um, but also, it's very important to understand what Cuba was like on the eve of the revolution and why there was a revolution a vast illiteracy, vast malnutrition, vast poverty, etc. Cuba has been a huge success story in alleviating all of those, and it's very much of a model in that sense for much of the rest of the world. The trouble is, how do you reconcile that with the kind of democratic system that we uh, consider um, most favorable? Why did Raul feel the need to modernize what his brother had done? Um, two reasons, I think. Firstly, uh, Fidel was very much of the control freak. Uh, Raul, much less so. Raul is a consensus builder. His issue is really pragmatic resolution of issues. And he was very willing from the get-go. In fact, the first speech he gave as the incoming president said, we have to stop blaming the embargo and, and admit the faults are, that are self-inflicted. So he is very much pragmatic. And then, of course, the world circumstances very much changed. Uh, Fidel was willing to take the island down, sink it into the sea was a famous phrase he used. Um, Post-Soviet collapse, where the Cuba had been dependent upon the Soviets for everything, uh, then they had to make serious adjustments that Raul was far more willing to make than was Fidel. The new president more like Fidel or Raul? 
Oh, definitely Raoul. Uh, Raoul had to replace all the Fidelistas. It took him until 2011 to do so before he could begin his reform programs. And I want to stress that reforms, um, whilst to the outside world, may not look substantial. Given the comparison with what Fidel had put in place, they are indeed substantial. The economic uh, reforms have begun. Raoul has said they will continue. And so Miguel is a Raulista. He is hand-chosen, obviously, by Raoul and the Council of Ministers with the intent that he will move forward Raoul's vision with no sense of what the long-term perspective will be. But I have absolutely no doubt that it will be incremental reform. It may not be at the pace that uh, you and I would wish, uh, U.S. government, Canadian government, but uh, Canada has been a great supporter of Cuba in the process, the reform process itself. And personally, I hope that uh, they will succeed in moving it forward a little more rapidly, but moving it forward. What is Miguel Diaz-Canal like? Do people of Cuba like him? Um, That's hard to say. I mean, Cuba itself is a divided society. Mm. Um, There are those who are ardently supportive of the revolution to this day, and those, obviously, who can't wait for a new beginning in which there's um, what we call multi-party democracy. So um, Miguel has been very much of an unknown character. Obviously, he's been somewhat of a public figure for the last two or three years, for obvious reasons. But, um, I mean, he's been playing his cards very close to his chest. He's very much of... A system man. There's no intent on changing things. But what the Cubans do like about him, he has been very much more out there with the public. Um, as when he was governor, by the way, of Villa Clara province, where he was uh, born, he used to hang around in shorts. Can't imagine Raúl and Fidel doing that. Mm. Um, <laughs> was was very frequently seen um, attending to people's wishes, and he was a, a great defender of what we call liberal values. He was a big supporter of gay and lesbian rights issues back then. We're going back 10 years or so. How does he see the future of Cuba? What does he see? You said that Raul, obviously, uh, trying to modernize, uh, not so much with this president. Uh, Where does he see Cuba in the next 5, 10 years? I don't think there have been many clear statements that are any different from Raul's perspective. Um, and so it's, it's hard to say. What is critical to understand is that Cuba sees itself, quite rightly, threatened by the USA's largest entity, largest power, which is determined to overthrow the Cuban government. Um, the, the Cuban-American lobby, which shapes U.S. policy, is not happy at a peaceful transition. They want to see a wholesale change. And so this makes Cuba... Uh, very attentive to that as their number one priority, i.e. protecting their system as they know it. And so he's very much not going to be trying to go off on any new, very liberal, radical tangent, nor would he be permitted to do so. The military is a big player in the economy and in the government. Um, So it's difficult to say what vision he may have long term. I think the goal is to have warm relations with the USA again, not likely to happen under this administration, and obviously to trade uh, more openly with the USA. Can't do so currently because of U.S. laws. So it's uh, a matter of wait and see. Wait and see. Uh, consider, uh, considering the government's uh, policy failed, or Castro's initial policy failed uh, as far as bringing pro- uh, uh, pro- uh, making the country prosperous, 
does he not see the need to do more what Raul has done, open up markets, uh, try to bring some more wealth to his country? Oh, there's no doubt about that. In fact, um, that has been a consistent goal under Raul. Um, and they they've certainly have received a lot more investment uh, in Cuba. Unfortunately, because of um, what I call from Washington, shoot ourselves in the foot policies, uh, we've handed much, we, uh, I am a U.S. citizen, uh, we've handed much of the, the trade opportunities over to the Chinese and the Russians recently because of silly policy. Uh, there is absolutely a goal on the part of Cuba to open up more, to trade internationally, and of course, they trade uh, quite extensively with, with Cuba, Mexico, South American, European nations. Um, there's no doubt about that. I will say that I do believe, to repeat myself, that Fidel actually achieved a great deal uh, in terms of improving the living conditions of a vast number, vast percentage of the Cuban populace. The cost, of course, the corollary was the destruction of the middle and upper classes and private business. Uh, but it, it needs to be acknowledged that he raised the living standards of the underclass significantly. What about relations between the United States and Cuba? Uh, you were talking about change in leadership. Under Barack Obama, it seemed that things were loosening up, and, and, and it, it actually seemed quite festive at one point. What has happened now? Where does, how, does this, how does this relationship move forward? Yeah, and there's absolutely no doubt that uh, Cuba really did welcome uh, that change, and, and that that warm relationship permitted Cuba to ease back on its citizenry in terms of um, freedom of speech, etc. The the problem right now is that um, we've returned to a position in Washington where Washington's policy is being dictated out of Miami. It's being dictated by the Cuban American lobby, and particularly by Senator Marco Rubio. Uh, who is uh, has key positions as chairperson on key committees that deal with Cuba. Um, and as I said before, um, there there's no desire on the part of the elite of Cuban-Americans, uh, many of them with political ambitions in a post-Castro Cuba, to see, uh, to welcome uh, um, a transition, a successful transition to a post-Castro era. So under Trump... Um, uh, I don't. I don't see any real opening whilst Marco Rubio and Co hold the reins on this. How how does uh, the, the the Cuban American contingent and these are people that came to the United States with nothing? They lost everything. Uh, how does this segment of the population uh, change this discussion when the U.S. and Cuba are trying to encourage relations? I mean, obviously, this is still a segment of the population that's very angry at Cuba. Yeah, and of course that population is itself divided. There were 400,000-plus Cuban-Americans traveled to Cuba last year. And so you have maybe half of the population in Miami who really do want uh, an opening, uh, a warm warm position um, towards Cuba, and then you've got the others who don't. Uh, and it's, it's unfortunate that it's the others who hold key positions in Congress sufficient to to manipulate uh, Washington's policy uh, so I, I, I don't I don't see any real way out of this imbroglio um, under this administration uh, Obama much to his credit took, took the risk of defying the um, Cuban American lobbying group in that it had always been considered that you had to appease them by being anti-Castro to win their votes it's very important to remember Florida is the key state you need to win uh, to get the presidential 
nomination and, and win the presidency. And can anybody say Gore Bush? Uh, and so the Cuban Americans do hold the the strings here. Uh, what? Why is Cuba still concerned about relations with the U.S.? Are they still concerned that that, that, that they're coming after them? Are they still are they still scared of the United States in that respect? Well, they are, of course, and it's very important to know that the Helms-Burton Law, which is the U.S. embargo law, is codified that uh, it cannot be removed. The embargo, as we know it, cannot be removed until there have been what we define as free and fair elections and no Castro in government. Uh, from Canada's perspective, it's very interesting that the Helms-Burton law actually does its utmost to try and prevent other nations trading with Cuba also. Canada actually enacted a law to uh, make Canadian corporations uh, illegal for them to adhere to U.S. policy that way. And so Cuba is very, very um, concerned that it is really hampered from being able to trade freely with non-U.S entities by U.S. law itself, and uh, it is U.S. policy, as I said, to kind of overthrow the system as a whole and put in place a multi-party democracy. So uh, the, you, you and I would be concerned if that was the case of a mm. foreign, any foreign entity trying to, to do that with our own government. How concerned is the U.S. about Cuba? I mean, why are, are, are they, do they still view them as a threat? Um, as I said, it, it, U.S. policy is driven out of Miami. There have been many periods, several periods in U.S. history recently, post-revolution, when there's been a sincere effort by the USA to uh, end the embargo, and most uh, prominently under Ford administration and Henry Kissinger. Uh, we made the moves. Uh, Fidel didn't want it. I think Raoul does want uh, an open relationship restored. The trouble is that since the Reagan era, 1980, you had the creation of the Cuban-American lobbying group that coincided with their rise to political power and economic power in Florida for the first time, because they were dispossessed of everything after they left Cuba and after the revolution. You can feel great empathy for them, but they rose to a position at a, uh, of power and influence at a time that coincided with the Reagan administration and its determination to be very anti-communist. And so... Uh, it's driven by Florida once again, by the spite that um, much in the Cuban-American community feel. Will there be any real change under the new president? Will, will the rest of the world notice a difference? Um, not in the short term. Uh, I think in the long term we may. Uh, Cuba knows and has stated that it needs to make some radical changes, uh, not least the unification of the two currencies, which is disastrous for their economy. Um, and that certainly they, they need um, to look to the future with Venezuela, which has been providing all their oil going down the tubes. Uh, so they're in a, in a very unstable position, plus they have a lot of pent-up demand by the local populace for economic alleviation. I mean, they're, they're grossly underpaid. We all know that. There's a shortage of material goods. We understand that. Uh, and partly, of course, this is our much part. It's to do with the total inefficiencies in the communist system. So there's a lot of aspiration on the part of the Cubans themselves that Raul has been responding to. And I think Miguel will show that he will respond perhaps even a little more fully uh, to the aspirations of the Cubans for a material improvement. And how they achieve it, that's the difficult part. Christopher Baker has been with us, travel writer, photographer, expert on the island of Cuba, their culture, politics, history, and economics. Christopher, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. 
You're very welcome. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.